This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. Separation of families can never be a proper deterrence tool because family unity is a fundamental principle of constitutional law in the United States. The Trump administration, since its first month in office, has made immigration a central focus, and it has followed through on campaign rhetoric with a steady flow of executive orders, regulations, and statutory proposals. Taken together, they add up to a fundamental shift in U.S. policy and the American narrative on immigration. Here's a partial list of the administration's actions. Most in the news has been the separation of young children from their parents who are arrested at the border. President Trump officially renounced this policy with an executive order last month. During the campaign, Donald Trump declared his intent to bar all Muslim immigrants from the United States. In office, he has issued three executive orders implementing versions of that ban, the last of which was recently upheld by the Supreme Court. Mr. Trump has terminated the DACA program, but that termination has been stalled by the courts. He has asked Congress to come up with a fix. It has not done so. In the current fiscal year, the admission of refugees will decline by more than 75% from the number set in the last year of the Obama administration, despite the highest number of persons displaced by violence and conflict since World War II. Attorney General Sessions has revoked enforcement guidelines in place through Democratic and Republican administrations that focused on the removal of non-citizens convicted of serious crimes. The Attorney General has also announced a new rule that will bar most victims of domestic violence from being granted asylum in the United States. The administration supports a legislative proposal called the Raise Bill that would cut legal immigration to the United States by 50%. And the government has sought to punish so-called sanctuary cities and has undertaken targeted enforcement against immigrant advocates. These policies and proposals have sparked protests and lawsuits, as well as staunch defenses from the administration and its supporters. What this podcast aims to achieve is to provide careful and informed discussion of these policies and other migration issues. We want to go beyond stock responses and sound bites in an attempt to better understand the issues at play and what is at stake for this country and those who seek to join us here. This is our inaugural podcast, and we start today with an examination of the Trump administration's zero-tolerance strategy on the southwest border, the separation of children from parents who have attempted to enter the United States, the administration's new plans now that it has abandoned the policy of separation, and likely court challenges. As has been widely reported, more than 2,000 children have been separated from their parents, And although a recent court order has given the government 30 days to reunite families, the government has sought more time to do so. To help us understand the uh, complicated uh, legal and policy issues here, I'm joined today by Denise Gilman, who is director of the Immigration Clinic at the University of Texas School of Law. 
The clinic has been involved with issues of family detention for more than a decade and currently represents uh, people in removal proceedings, deportation proceedings from the United States and asylum seekers from Central uh, America. Denise, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you start by giving us a sense of what is actually happening uh, at the border these days? What's the situation down there? Well, the very first thing that I think it's really important to understand is that border crossings at the southern border of the U.S. are actually at historic lows. Uh, and it's quite dramatic if you really look at the numbers. According to Customs and Border Patrol, uh, in 2000, we had 1.6 million irregular border crossers. And for each of the last five years under the Obama administration and under the Trump administration, we've had under 500,000 uh, irregular border crossers. And often in the 300,000 range. Um, there are obviously ebbs and, and flows of, of those uh, migration flows, uh, but, but overall numbers are very low. And of those who are crossing these days, uh, many, many of them are asylum seekers from Central America, largely women and children, families and children, uh, who present no danger at all. They do present some humanitarian challenges about how to process these asylum seekers. Um, um, and that's really the scenario. The, the communities along the border are among the safest in the country. Um, so it really is important to view the border uh, as presenting a, a series of processing challenges, but certainly uh, not presenting any serious security threat. Right. So you, the numbers you've reported are apprehensions, people who've been caught trying to enter. How do we relate that to the number of people who actually might have entered without being apprehended? How do we know that the decrease in apprehensions means that fewer people are actually entering the country? Well, that's a very good question. Um, and of course, there is no perfect data on exactly the number of people who cross. But given the buildup of uh, Border Patrol and enforcement along the border, we can assume that a pretty high proportion of those who are crossing are apprehended at this point. And the government itself has always relied on those apprehension statistics as a proxy for numbers of crossers. And we also know that overall in the United States, uh, migration numbers are lowered. Uh, in other words, there is a decreasing undocumented uh, population in the United States. Uh, individuals still come into the country or, or fall out of status and become part of the undocumented population. Uh, but overall, more people are leaving in any given year, either voluntarily or through deportations or, or for other reasons, uh, such that the, the numbers are going down. Uh, so it makes sense. It fits in with those overall numbers uh, to see that the numbers at the border are also quite low. I think it's really underscoring that, that for the last few years, there's been a net out-migration of Mexicans from the United States to Mexico. I think that's generally unappreciated. That's right. That's yeah. been pretty well documented. And of course, that's as to Mexicans, but Mexicans have always been a very, very significant proportion of our overall undocumented population, as well as of those who are crossing the border irregularly. Uh, so we are seeing increased numbers of Central Americans, again, because of the extreme violence uh, in the Northern Triangle of Central America, the highest homicide rates in, in the world. Um, but those numbers are still relatively 
relatively small overall uh, and with the uh, net uh, negative migration from Mexico, it means that overall border crossing numbers are lower and overall undocumented population numbers are lower. So the idea that we have a crisis at the southwest border is uh, probably not the right way to describe the situation. I don't think anybody actually living along the border would see it that way. Those communities are very safe. Uh, the numbers, uh, again, are really quite small of uh, border crossers, and many of those are women and children who are turning themselves in to the first Border Patrol officer that they see. Uh, Attorney General Sessions has announced a zero-tolerance policy at the southwest border. Uh, can you tell me what that really means in practice? So what the zero tolerance policy does is it says that every individual who crosses the border without papers, without authorization, uh, will be prosecuted under the misdemeanor unlawful entry statute, which does allow for prosecution of an individual who crosses the border uh, without authorization. It was particularly directed at families, and that is what we have seen is that prosecutions have largely uh, taken place against parents who have crossed the border with their children. So how does this differ from earlier practice? If it's been a crime forever to, to cross the border uh, illegally, why haven't people been prosecuted in the past? So, as with any criminal prosecution, the government has very broad discretion to decide whether or not to pursue criminal charges. And in the past, uh, for the most part, the government has not pursued criminal charges at all against individuals whose only crime is the misdemeanor or crime of just crossing the border without authorization. And particularly, prosecutorial discretion has been exercised not to prosecute families or parents of families who are crossing the border because of the implications uh, of, of such a prosecution. And the justification of the zero tolerance policy by the administration is that it will ultimately deter people from coming if they know, rather than simply being returned over the border, they will now be criminally prosecuted. Is that the claim? Uh, that's the claim, although I think it is very wrapped up from the beginning in the idea that the criminal prosecution is not the uh, primary uh, function of these uh, prosecutions in and of itself, but rather that the prosecution also leads to family separation, and that is what will create the, the deterrent effect. Right. So let's talk about that. How is it that the zero tolerance policy has led to this, these uh, several thousand children being separated from their parents? So what happens is that when a parent is criminally prosecuted, then they are put into the criminal justice system, uh, where often it is just a, a matter of a couple of hours that they are in criminal court pleading guilty to the crime of uh, unlawful entry. In some cases, they are actually sentenced to a few days or, or even uh, a few weeks. In either case, what happens is during that time that the parent is taken off to the criminal justice system, they are treated as having been separated from their child, and their child is now treated as an unaccompanied minor, an unaccompanied child, and is taken into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement under Health and Human Services uh, in a an child's shelter uh, in a different system. And the parent, once 
completed with their criminal case then goes into adult immigration detention. And then the child and parent do not reunite because now they are in very different immigration detention facilities and immigration systems, separate immigration cases. So as I understand it, the Obama administration also detained families as a deterrent measure to stop the flow from Central America. How is what the Attorney General Sessions announced different from what the Obama administration had in place? Well, there are two key differences. First of all, the families are separated under this new policy, whereas under the Obama administration, families were detained together. Um, and there was uh, very quickly after Obama ramped up family detention, a litigation response that led to very tight restrictions on how long those families could in fact be detained together, usually only 20 days and not for exclusively deterrent purposes, but rather only for processing uh, purposes in the immigration case. Um, so that's one key difference is here you're seeing families being separated and detained separately and potentially for very prolonged periods as compared to being detained together for relatively short periods after litigation. The other key difference is that there was no criminal prosecution uh, in the case of the Obama administration. Um, and that is part and parcel of the family separation, so it's relevant for that, but it is also very relevant in the signaling uh, that uh, criminally prosecuting families, parents crossing the border does. It certainly creates a, a sensation of uh, a criminal uh, issue rather than a refugee issue. So um, the administration has been quite critical of what it called the catch and release policy of the Obama administration. It said that uh, people came into the country, they were arrested and released pending determination of their right to enter, and that they didn't show up, and that they needed to adopt a tougher policy to deter people from coming to the border. Uh, I'd be interested in your views first on, on how effective the so-called catch and release policy was, and secondly, whether deterrence uh, is a, a, an appropriate uh, policy objective at the southwest border. Right. So um, I, I am always a bit mystified, frankly, by the reference to, to catch and release, just because uh, immigration detention numbers have been on a continual, uh, very strong upward trend for many years now, really dating back to about 2006, 2007. So I'm always a bit mystified by uh, the the mention of catch and release just because immigration detention um, as a tool that has been used at the border in terms of recent entrance has been on a continual upward trend, quite, uh, quite strong trend, really for a decade or more now. Um, and so many, many individuals have been uh, detained just as they've approached the border or entered the United States and, and sought asylum. And since 2014, that has included a very high proportion of families 
families who are entering the United States and seeking asylum who are detained for at least some period of time uh, with some legal and constitutional limits on how long exactly they can be detained. Um, so it, it's it, it, the term is a bit misleading in addition to being pejorative because it really, and I think it is important to note that catch and release is a term that is used to, in discussion of, of fishing, for example. It, it's again kind of this terminology uh, that treats uh, migrants as animals or, or less than uh, fully human bearing rights and and uh, in, in being protected by um, U.S. law and, and human rights law. Um, in terms of what the policy really was and whether it uh, had risks of allowing individuals to just disp- disappear into the United States and not appear for their hearings, the evidence actually suggests that whether or not uh, somebody was initially detained at the border when seeking asylum Um, the appearance rates for individuals and families uh, who have adequate information, because the process is very opaque, um, the appearance rates are very, very high, above 90%. Uh, They are particularly high when an individual is represented by counsel, because counsel can help to ensure that they do have the information that they need to be able to participate in these very complex and and confusing processes. proceedings. Recent empirical work done by Ingrid Eagley out at UCLA shows that families who were released from detention, uh, the the few families back in 2001 who were detained all the way up to looking at the much larger numbers uh, in the last four years or so, uh, overall the appearance rates were at about 96%. Um, So the the idea that uh, there is a great risk of of non-participation in proceedings really isn't borne out in the evidence. And that makes sense because these are asylum seekers who have very strong incentives to appear for their uh, hearings in order to gain the protection that they came seeking for themselves and for their families. In terms of deterrence, uh, it it really isn't uh, an appropriate justification for detention uh, because immigration is a civil process and immigration detention is intended to be a civil administrative detention just to ensure that uh, people appear for their hearings and don't present any danger to the community while those immigration proceedings are ongoing. Um, And so deterrence uh, as a justification for detention really comes from the criminal justice world, the idea that if you've been convicted of a crime with full due process, then it's appropriate to hold you, to deprive you of your liberty in order to send a deterrence message to others. But civil immigration detention, it it does not have that uh, purpose uh, and does not have those protections of due process process and a a criminal conviction. And so really the only purpose for immigration detention can be to ensure appearance at hearings, which it looks like from the evidence can be assured otherwise outside of detention, and to ensure that there's no danger to the community. um, And these asylum-seeking families just really can't uh, be treated as presenting any danger to the community. So is is your last point there then in a 
an odd way, actually, a justification of criminal prosecution then, that the, you're saying it's not proper to use civil proceedings to deter people, uh, but we think deterrence is a reasonable policy. The numbers have gone way down at the southwest border. So if criminal prosecutions actually aid in deterrence, then that might be an appropriate policy at the border? Uh, well, so I do think that it is proper to have deterrence serve as a goal of criminal prosecutions. I'm not sure that I would flip it around and say, oh, so then we do need to have criminal prosecutions because I actually don't think that the numbers show that the criminal prosecutions are deterring migration. Uh, I don't think you can reach that result. But I do think that it is proper to have criminal prosecutions work as deterrence. However, I don't think that's what we can say this zero tolerance policy has been set up to do or has done. The zero tolerance policy has been very explicitly tied to separating families as deterrence. That can never be a proper lawful criminal sanction separation of families as the intended result of the criminal prosecution and separation of families can never be a proper uh, deterrence tool because family unity is a fundamental principle of constitutional law in the United States as well as human rights law. So while it might be appropriate to say that the misdemeanor criminal sentence of two days, uh, if it in fact sends a deterrent message, which I don't think it does, that would be appropriate. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but the idea of using that misdemeanor prosecution to effectuate a split, a taking of a child from that child's parents in order to sanction the misdemeanor crime and then try to deter others from coming to the United States is grossly disproportionate to the crime and an inappropriate deterrence uh, strategy. Um, and in fact, the criminal prosecution is really just a tiny blip in the process uh, that is set up uh, to, to try to deter. Really what's happening is that the government is then perpetuating the separation, sending the adult to adult detention, uh, immigration detention, which is supposed to be civil, sending the child to ORR custody, and then making it extremely difficult for those families to reunite. And so it really is the civil immigration detention portion of the process that is uh, the impactful one. Um, and that would not be uh, appropriate as a deterrence measure. Now, of course, the, the the president signed an executive uh, order repudiating uh, the separation uh, policy, almost uh, saying that he had had nothing to do with the uh, initial decision, but he, he did respond to public outcry about the separation of these uh, thousands of kids uh, from their uh, parents. Um, so what is the current stance of the government on how these children will be reunited with their family? What steps are being taken and how effective are those? Right. So in addition to the president's announcement that family separations would not continue, of course, there has been litigation on the issue and a preliminary injunction issued by a federal court in San Diego in a 
nationwide class action case that says that the families must be reunited on a very short timeline. And there have been some additional uh, cases in individual family matters uh, trying to uh, reunite families as well. Um, What we are seeing is really chaos, uh, utter and complete chaos. Um, the, there are real concerns about whether or not families can even be identified where the mother is, where the child is, and whether the family can be in contact, whether the parent can speak to the child and, and make those arrangements for, for reunification. But beyond that, uh, the government, as late as last week, was taking steps to prolong the separation, for example, by refusing to release the parent um, while acknowledging that a child could not be reunited with the parent if that parent is in adult immigration detention. You also had cases where the parent managed to be released from adult immigration detention through the normal process of showing a viable asylum claim and then getting out uh, by paying uh, a bond. But then once out of detention, seeing the parent have difficulty in having the child released from ORR custody to the parent, even though uh, the child had initially been taken away from that parent without any determination that the parent was an inappropriate caregiver, much less a danger. But then you see ORR engaging inquiries about whether the the parent is an appropriate placement for the child, and then there were there have been costs associated with uh, airfare to bring the child, who may have been sent to Chicago or Washington State or Michigan, while the parent is still down here in Texas, um, and then uh, leading to to high costs in airfare and the rest to to reunite. So we were seeing a lot uh, of those uh, very serious logistical difficulties. Over the weekend, just now, uh, it has appeared that the government has realized um, that its uh, effort to convince the court that it was doing its best and needed more time to reunify the families has failed, that the court realizes that if anything, the government has not adequately moved to reunite families and has even been impeding uh, that reunification. And so now the government seems to be engaged in sort of a very uh, chaotic, desperate effort uh, to to fix the problem, uh, which has basically meant that the government is saying now they're just going to release all the parents and then sort of have it be a free-for-all where the nonprofit community uh, does the work of then trying to get those children back to their parents who've now been released from immigration detention. And I understand also the government has taken the position in one court case that um, while, yes, maybe kids couldn't shouldn't be separated from their parents, but the government is not prohibited from detaining parents and children together in civil detention, immigration detention. And they point to earlier practices of the Obama administration where families were detained. So are we likely to see more family detention now of kids and parents together? That's absolutely where the administration has stated that it intends to go. Um, There are large family detention centers already built in the United States and operating, and uh, I expect that there will be efforts to set up very quickly additional um, family detention centers. However, the 
litigation that took place after the ramp up of family detention back in 2014 establishes pretty clearly that the administration, the government cannot uh, detain families for deterrence purposes of sending a message to other potential asylum seekers and also cannot detain families for prolonged periods and still protect the rights of children under the old, decades-old Flores settlement, which requires that children be released from immigration custody from detention at the hands of the government as quickly as possible and with a strong preference for release to a parent. Um, And so uh, what that uh, Flores uh, settlement interpretation has meant is that for the most part, families uh, may be held for very brief periods in immigration detention together, but must be released uh, after about 20 days after they are processed and passed a screening interview uh, and are released. Now, the government is trying to say that it can't comply with uh, the court order saying that it has to keep families together and at the same time with the court orders that say that family detention uh, can generally be only allowed for about 20 days. But that's simply not the case. Of course, the government can, in fact, uh, comply with both orders uh, by releasing families um, after no more than 20 days uh, if detention is uh, necessary and appropriate at all. And again, all of the empirical evidence indicates that um, families who are released from detention are very likely to appear for their proceedings uh, and really present no threat to the community at all. Of course, for the government, government, if that if families are released after 20 days, it seems like they've really uh, lost everything at the border because uh, there's no more zero tolerance prosecutions going on for families because that would lead to separation. But if you're detaining families together civilly only for 20 days, uh, then people are out uh, on the streets and it looks like basically return to what the administration derisively called catch and release. Is that fair? I I think it's fair to say that it would mean that the policy that was adopted in April of this year that uh, followed on many months of of discussion of the possibility of family separation or prolonged detention is a failed policy that is unlawful. Absolutely, it would mean that. Uh, But would it mean that there is any uh, danger or increased crisis at the border? No, because again, uh, the, the, idea of of a threat at the border really was something very much manufactured by the administration. Um, And so there really is no significant risk presented by a return to the prior policy, which is compliant with uh, law at all levels, uh, both the decades old settlement as well as constitutional principles of family unity. Um, And so what you would really be seeing is a return to the rule of law, a return to uh, a situation where uh, the the various norms of family unity and limits on civil immigration detention, um, not allowing it to become prolonged, punitive, or, or uh, deterrent in, in goals and, and impact, um, would be safeguarded. 
Yeah. So let's uh, take a look at the current situation now. So suppose someone now arrives uh, between ports of entry, tries to cross the country, cross in, into the country illegally, an adult uh, with a child. They're stopped by the border patrol just inside the United States. What now will happen under this welter of policies? <laughs> right. Uh, well, it's a little hard frankly, still at this point. Uh, what we are seeing is that for the time being, there are no criminal prosecutions at all. Um, new prosecutions of first-time uh, irregular entrance into the United States. Um, but there is no guarantee yet that those prosecutions will not resume, um, but they would have to resume in a way that did not require uh, family separations. And so um, it's unclear whether they will resume and just have uh, adults being brought over to a criminal court for a couple of hours to, to plead guilty and then return to immigration custody with their children or not. But at this moment, we're not seeing that. So what we are seeing is uh, basically a, a return to the prior situation where what happens when an individual comes to the border, either presenting themselves at a bridge or crossing into the United States and, and turning over to a Border Patrol official, if, if it's a family, a, a parent and child, or, or more than one child, um, they are put into expedited removal, uh, which means that if they don't claim any fear of return to their home country, they're immediately deported back, and that really does happen. Uh, without any review by any immigration court or judge of any kind at all, just a frontline immigration officer. If the family does claim a fear of return to the home country, uh, then one of two things happens. Uh, and this, again, is whether they've presented at a port of entry, at a bridge, or after having entered the United States. They are either just processed right there at the border fingerprints taken, data taken, and, and put into immigration court removal proceedings where they can seek asylum and then released into the U.S. to go live with their family and appear at those hearings. Or the family is sent to a detention center after that basic processing at the border, a family detention center, where they will undergo a credible fear screening interview to determine whether or not they have an asylum claim. It's a very limited uh, screening interview, very high stakes. Um, if they don't pass that interview, then again, they are deported and families are regularly deported under that process. Um, if they pass the interview, then for the most part, the family as a unit will be released to go live with relatives uh, to attend future immigration court hearings. Passing the interview does not give them asylum. It just gives them the chance to seek asylum down the road uh, in immigration court. So, so the the process you've described is what has annoyed the president. He seems to say, if if uh, someone shows up at your house, you tell them to go away. Uh, get uh, someone seeking entry to your private home. He thinks the country, in the same way, should be able to tell anyone who shows up to simply go away. And once you bring them in and give them all this process and bring judges in, uh, people stretch out the process and 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 it keeps going for for forever and ever. So there's a a parallel or there's a, a um, there's a consistency with the demand for the wall and the statement that there are too many judges uh, in too much process. Uh, as I understand it, um, 
there are there is now some evidence of a practice at the border where people show up even at a port of entry say they want to apply for asylum but they're told by the border patrol uh, either that they can't apply right now or that they should go back and wait and come back at another time when they can be handled do you have a sense of how widespread that practice is now that's a very good question. So we have absolutely seen that. It's been going for quite some time out uh, in California uh, near the border at San Diego. Um, and there's a whole sort of ticketing system even that takes place where uh, people are told they must wait in line or wait for weeks to present themselves at the border to be allowed to be processed into detention and into the system that, that I just described uh, with the announcement of zero tolerance in South Texas. We absolutely saw that building up uh, in Texas as well, actually all along the Texas-Mexico border from El Paso to Laredo to Brownsville. Uh, where we were uh, seeing people sitting on the bridge begging and waiting for days on end, if not weeks, to try to even just access the asylum process in the United States um, and, and having great difficulty in doing that. I've spoken to families who were turned away two, three, four times at the border before finally finding a sympathetic agent who would allow them access to the asylum process in the United States, which really means access to being put into detention so that they can at least have an asylum uh, screening interview. So we are seeing that very broadly. And it is consistent, as you say, with uh, the administration's overall attitude of we should be able to just completely flat out reject people at our border, uh, regardless of who they are. Unfortunately, that position is completely inconsistent with both U.S. law, very well-established U.S. law that provides for access to the asylum process for any individual who either presents at a border and point of entry or enters the United States. Um, and it's also inconsistent with uh, the UN Refugee Convention and its protocol, uh, which binds the United States uh, as a binding law and has been implemented in US law, which absolutely uh, requires the US to process claims for asylum that are made at our border and, and immediately after entry into the United States. So th there's some who might say in response to that, look, the people applying for asylum are coming from Central America. They're traveling through Mexico, which is, there's no claim that Mexico will persecute them. Why isn't it fair to ask them to wait in Mexico for an orderly process where they can be taken in one by one and, and they can make their application. They wouldn't have to be detained in the United States. They wouldn't be separated from their families. It wouldn't be violating international law because people would not be sent back to the country that would persecute them. I know the government actually, there's been rumors the government is thinking about some regulations that would declare Mexico a, a safe country in which uh, asylum would be asylum applicants could be parked pending their admission to apply for asylum in the United States. What, what's wrong with that, with that system? 
Right. No, good question. Well, first point I would like to make very, very clear is that uh, there is no way for a Central American asylum-seeking family to seek asylum from within their home country. That's just an initial starting point that some people really uh, don't realize still. There was a very, very small pilot program under the Obama administration to allow certain children to seek asylum and asylum-related protection from within their home countries or from within the region, at least. Um, and that was canceled at the very beginning of the Trump administration. There is simply no way for a family to seek asylum or related protection from within their home country. As to Mexico, why shouldn't they be asked to wait in Mexico? Um, the, the main answer is that it is very, very dangerous in northern Mexico along the border with the U.S. on the Mexico side. Um, there are, uh, of course, cartels uh, and other actors who prey on migrants specifically. And so it is extremely um, dangerous for those migrant families. There's also a very real danger uh, that those families might be deported back to their home countries by the Mexican authorities because the Mexican authorities are also engaging in large-scale deportations of Central Americans back to uh, Central America. And of course, it also doesn't take into account that some of the asylum seekers at the border are Mexican. Uh, Mexico does have its own human rights situation uh, that can be quite severe for certain uh, individuals who are targeted for their political opinion or or for uh, religious reasons or for other reasons. Um, And so, of course, it's no solution at all to ask somebody to uh, wait in danger in their home country uh, to be able to apply for asylum protection in the United States. Um, That's, you know, sort of the, the main concern. The U.S. law really also just doesn't provide for it. There's a very specific legal regime um, for individuals presenting at the border or who have just crossed into the United States um, as to how they are to be processed. um, And those provisions really just do not foresee the idea of allowing uh, the government to, to push families back into Mexico to wait. As to the safe third country possibility, the idea that families should seek asylum in Mexico, again, uh, the biggest concern would be that, in fact, there is great danger in in Mexico for for many uh, Central Americans, um, either because of the criminal situation in Mexico or because uh, some of the Central American gangs uh, who are targeting asylum seekers uh, from Central America do have a presence within Mexico, particularly uh, within southern Mexico, and, and have reach uh, to other parts of the country as well. And the, and the Mexican asylum system really just is not... Um, mature enough or large enough uh, to absorb uh, the numbers of of Central American asylum seekers who it would have to handle if, in fact, uh, we pushed back Central American asylum seekers from the U.S. into Mexico to seek asylum. So what I hear you saying here is that, uh, to go back to your earlier, earlier statements, is that the numbers are not overly large. People have legal rights to make these claims. We can handle this in our normal system, and people who are released uh, will show up for their hearings uh, to, to to make their 
asylum claims so that we can kind of just lower the rhetoric uh, on this and, and just let the process work uh, as it has. I, I would add to that, I think, a, an unknown fact for many people that, that this year the, the largest number of asylum claims, the country that will send the largest number of asylum seekers to the United States is Venezuela. It's mm. not. It's not these Central American countries. There's been, been no issue raised about the central about the Venezuelans flying to Miami elsewhere <laughs> and asking for uh, asylum. Uh, but somehow the Central Americans have been wrapped up into this crisis uh, at the border. Denise, uh, we're at the end of our time. I really want to thank you for spending time with us. Um, you've really laid uh, these issues out in a very understandable uh, way with some very uh, profound analysis of what's going. Going on at the border and I want to thank you very much. Thank you for doing it. You have been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Technical assistance is provided by Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112. Our themes were composed by Eli Elenikoff. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. You can reach us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That is tossedtempest.com all one word, at gmail.com.